Oh, you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to A Priest and a Bishop Walk Into a Story. I'm Jessica Gazzola, the priest. And I'm Frank Krebs, the bishop. And you've walked into an ongoing conversation on progressive Catholic life, and we're so glad you've decided to join us. And today we're going to be focusing in on a story that makes us think about beginnings. Uh, So perhaps there was an ending that happened in your life at some point, and then it branched into a new beginning, Mm -hmm. and you can relate. Since we're sharing our stories and we have a special guest this morning with us who's going to be able to share his story, uh, we want to focus in on beginnings. And since this is a podcast for the Ecumenical Catholic Communion, we thought let's start with the person who was perhaps most focal in the beginning of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion, and that would be Bishop Peter, around whom many people gathered and the ECC was born. Mm. Yeah, Bishop Peter, he holds a special place in our history, and we know that as with any new beginning, there's lots of energy and excitement, and there can also be anxiety and worry, and I'm just eager, as a person who came into the Ecumenical Catholic Communion just a couple years after it formed, to hear sort of our birth story. I kind of feel like, you know, the little kid who's it's their birthday, and, you know, they want their mom to tell them their birth story, and yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel that way right now. So I'm really glad Bishop Peter Hickman that you have decided to join us today. So welcome to the show. Well, I'm happy to to participate in this program and to share with you some of my recollections of formation of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion and what went on leading up to that event that took place in the year 2003. Yeah, so Bishop Peter, your story and the story of the ECC, of course, it began before its founding in 2003 to 2004, so before you even identified as Catholic. So I'd really love to hear the story of how you discovered Catholicism. What what drew you to the tradition? It was quite a journey, and it turned out in a very unexpected way for me. I, I was raised as an evangelical Christian and was quite happy in that experience. It was a very positive one for me. And in particular, I was a Baptist. My parents were devout Baptists, and there are different kinds of Baptists in the United States, and the particular branch of the Baptist Church that I come from is called the American Baptist Church, or at one time, the Northern Baptists. And and so the Nor- Northern Baptists have a a, a different take on their Baptist heritage than, say, the Southern Baptists. The Southern Baptists were more fundamentalistic. Mm-hmm. I think that's how we would look at them today. And the Northern Baptists were uh, much more mainline, mm-hmm. in line with the Northern Methodists and the Presbyterians. And, and so they were more progressive on social issues, while at the same time still holding on to those distinctives of evangelical Christianity, which is characterized by a a personal relationship with Jesus and a love for the Bible. Mm. That's really helpful because I think we hear about Baptists maybe in the news or culture, and we think Southern Baptists, but there's really quite a, a variety of, of expressions. Yes, that, that and that's important to to recognize that there are different kinds of Baptists, and it's not one monolithic group mm-hmm. with the same attitudes. I guess the best way to describe it is that. During the 19th century, the American Baptists or the Northern Baptists were the abolitionists. Mm, and sure. the Southern Baptists were those who 
would use the Bible to justify the institution of slavery. And that's what led to the split between the two branches of the Baptist Church Mm. early in American history. And they were never able to reunite to this day. Mm. So you were happily an American Baptist. What made you start to look at traditions outside of your Baptist upbringing? When I was a young person, back in the uh, early 70s, I became involved in, at that time, a renewal movement within the Church, Mm. particularly among Protestants. And that renewal movement among young people was called the Jesus Movement. I, I don't know if you heard of that. It began I, I'm in old the late 60s that. and continued on through the early 70s. Frank says he's old enough to remember Yeah, that. <laughs> I, t- I totally remember that. Yeah, It was very big in Southern California, which mm. is where I grew up. Okay. And I became caught up in the excitement and the fervor of this move of the Holy Spirit among young people. I was young at the time, a teenager, but I did identify with the counterculture of that time. And the Jesus People movement was something that spread into the young hippie culture. Were you a young hippie, Bishop Peter? Yes. (laughs) Yes? (laughs) I can kind of picture that. (laughs) Yeah. That's wonderful. So uh, that was a very dramatic time, and then that led me into another larger movement that was going on. It was an ecumenical movement among Christians called the Charismatic Renewal. Okay. And I know that as a Roman Catholic that you, Frank, uh, participated in that. Absolutely. Yeah, that was... a good what happened to me was that the charismatic renewal introduced me to a broader Christianity. Mm. It was an ecumenical movement characterized by a, a new realization of the immediacy of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Mm. One of the things that happened, there would be great gatherings, prayer meetings that were very ecumenical, and for the first time, I found myself praying with Roman Catholics who were also participating in the charismatic renewal. Mm. But I was meeting Lutherans, Episcopalians, and so many others across the spectrum of the various Christian denominations. And so it broadened my understanding and my vision of what Christianity was all about. Mm. That was a very positive experience for me in the Mm mid-70s. It awakened something within me to have more of a Christian experience outside of the context of what I had experienced as a Baptist. I realized that my Baptist Christian experience was genuine and authentic, but I also wanted to have more of a Christian experience and a broader Christian experience by uh, participating in these ecumenical meetings and learning more about the other churches. Was there anything in particular about the Catholic tradition that sort of made you go, hmm, I want some of that. Yes, after I got over the shock that um, Catholics were actually participating in this movement, (laughs) because as a Baptist, we really didn't understand Roman Catholicism. It looked very strange to us, very alien. And to tell you the truth, we wondered if Catholics were really Christians or not. Sure. Mm. You probably heard that. Sure. Well, the Catholics that I was meeting in these charismatic prayer meetings and conferences, they were definitely Christians. Mm-hmm. And it, it caused me to, to rethink my understanding of Catholicism at that time. Bishop, and, Peter, um, Bishop Peter, let me, uh, if I may, just sort of jump in here, because this is a theme that we've been developing uh, that I want to kind of 
unpack here for us. Just we, we've been Jessica and I have been sharing with each other and with our listeners about how when we meet other people and we tell our stories, that that just kind of opens us up in a new way. And you were just giving such a practical example of that right now. Um, oh, that it, and, and had you not been a person who was willing to engage with others and had you not been open to hearing someone else's story you wouldn't have changed and grown in that moment so i, I just feel like putting that in uh, italics and underline uh, for us so thanks for that example Too and much. i think it's very true that was true in my experience i realized that christianity itself was much bigger than my particular experience of it within my own tradition in which I was raised. <laughs> and I began to be exposed to different ways that different Christians experienced their faith, and I wanted to have that experience, too. Mm. Awesome. It, 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 as far as Catholics were concerned, it was the first time I was exposed to liturgy, <laughs> in the sense of the historic liturgy of the Catholic Church. <laughs> Baptists regard themselves as being very non-liturgical, non-sacramental. In the charismatic renewal, I was meeting Catholic friends and going to their churches and experiencing this very new way of worshiping for me, which was actually a very old way that Christians have worshipped for centuries. Yeah, this being seeped in the ritual of the Eucharist, you know, has an effect on certain people. And I just would wonder, for you, who was being exposed to this, you know, a little later in life than maybe Frank or I, who were, who were raised Catholic, like, what did that feel like in your body? Like, when you went to Mass, like, what would, what did that feel like? The experience was much more tangible. It's interesting you talk about what it felt like in my body. Uh, Catholic worship is more holistic. You involve yourself with gestures mm -hmm. and posture throughout the liturgy, and certainly it was, it was more engaging as far as me as an individual. I wasn't just passively listening to the preacher. I was actually actively engaged in praying with the community. Mm -hmm. Something about Catholicism resonated with me about that time, that great sense of communal worship, um, a, a certain aesthetic quality. Catholic worship it really appealed to my artistic sense. I, I love good art, mm -hmm. and liturgy is a beautiful art form, mm -hmm. and it's very human. Because mm -hmm. it's it, the work it of the people, it's the work of everybody. So as a Baptist, I, I grew up going to church, which was emptied of most artistic expression. Mm -hmm. We had no icons or statues, no ritualized movement, and Catholicism exposed me to how the arts are really intrinsic to our humanity and should be employed mm. in the life of prayer and worship. And that's what I experienced with Catholicism, which became irresistibly attractive to me. Mm. One of the things, uh, Jessica and Frank, that the charismatic renewal did for me in my own internal spiritual life was it uh, gave me a great desire for two things— a sense of God's immediate presence with mm -hmm. us in the ordinary stuff of our lives, mm -hmm. and a desire to worship God with a certain kind of dignity and beauty. Mm -hmm. And those two things were ignited in my heart, and Catholicism offered that. Mm -hmm. Catholicism is very prayerful, very worshipful, 
and the liturgy provides for that. But also, this notion that God is immediately present to us, imminent, we say, in the charismatic spirituality, made the sacraments of the Church and sacramental theology and experience, the sacramental mentality, very plausible and attractive to me. I was finding the celebration of Eucharist to be very meaningful. Mm-hmm. And when I first received the, the Eucharist in a Catholic context, it was a very powerful emotional moment for me. Mm-hmm. You might say that I became infected with Catholicism while still a Baptist. Mm-hmm. I did uh, finish seminary, went to an evangelical seminary, and then I was ordained a Baptist minister. And after I was a Baptist minister, in my ministry at the church I was a pastor at, I tried to bring in some of the richness of Catholic tradition into that context. Hmm, of course, <laughs> I was young and idealistic, and I yeah. thought everyone would see the same beauty I saw. Yeah. It was, I, there was great resistance to what I was doing. Yeah. And people were saying, I don't know if you really are a Baptist anymore, Peter. Oh, that must hmm. have been so discouraging. Wow. Oh, it was, hmm. because I really didn't want to leave the Baptist church, right. but then I realized it was true. I had to face the truth that something inside me had transformed my sensibility as a Christian. That's when I went on a quest to find my way into a church that would have liturgy and sacraments and the rich spirituality and artistic expression that Catholicism offered. Interesting. I just want to reflect something back as I listen to your story so far, Bishop Peter, that sort of coming of age and then going and finding the the charismatic movement was so, sort of a beginning for you that was very connected to your history. I mean, it, you're still seeking an authentic expression of faith, but it was a heart opening experience where, yeah. you know, you were just sort of bust open. And now it sounds like we're coming to another piece of your story where you're finding that you need to find a new home. And that's like a heartbreaking experience. And that like, each there's a quality to each new beginning mm. that has sort of like this deep emotional heart wrenching touching experience but it's not always positive but it's not always negative and a lot of times it's both i just wanted mm. to reflect that back so to you so glad you're underlining that yeah it's a, we say when we're trying to teach people how to tell stories about difficult experiences that each new beginning always starts with an ending so mm. we, it, you know we, we're taught as kids that stories have beginnings middles and ends but the difficult part of life is it begins with an ending. Yeah. And then and then there's a, a transition period. Mm-hmm. And then there's the beginning. So I'm I'm just glad Jessica's zeroing in on that because there's some great sadness in leaving these people and this church where you had wonderful experiences, I assume. Well, well said, Frank and Jessica, because that was certainly my experience. I experienced profound loss. Mm. Mm. Grief. And I had to grieve mm-hmm. the loss of my Baptist identity mm-hmm. and the loss of that strong community, mm-hmm. and especially since they couldn't understand what I was doing. Mm-hmm. They really thought I went off the deep end. Sure. Yeah. You were really and, isolated. Um, and that was true even within my family. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm, uh, they, they could see me being a Baptist preacher. They could see me doing other things, but becoming Catholic, that was mm-hmm. just... Right. That was uh, really off the deep end as far as they, they, they could sure. tell. And, and it was difficult for me at that time to express to them what was going on. Another thing that you said, Frank, and uh, you alluded to, Jessica, is people come to religion or the religious experience 
from different ways. And for me, it was really always and ultimately a matter of the human heart, mm. listening to my heart and following my heart. And at the same time, I want whatever religious community I was a part of or whatever particular branch of Christianity that I was giving myself over to, that it would have a strong intellectual grounding. Mm. And Catholicism does offer that. I found it to be very satisfying to me intellectually because Catholicism expresses a Christianity with a rich intellectual tradition, a rich theological tradition, and it holds up to rigorous intellectual scrutiny. So I had to have something that would meet my need mm. intellectually as well as satisfying to my heart, my emotions, my spirit. Wow. That, as you're telling that, Peter, I'm thinking about something about your particular story, your life that uh, has always impressed me in the 10 years that I've known you, is that as much as you fell in love with Catholicism and wanted to have your Christianity be expressed in that way, there's the, the Baptist in you, the truest part of what you receive from that beautiful tradition is still there and, and bleeds through. And sometimes I find myself asking, how provident, asking a rhetorical question, how providential was that, that you were the presiding bishop at the beginning because of the qualities that one, from my perspective, sees in the Baptist tradition. And I'm thinking particularly what you just said about your heart mm. with that, that incredible focus on how important what's going on in your heart is. It, 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 you're never removed from that. And you bring that to every time you share. And when you speak about scripture, when you preach, you preach in an extremely personal way. And in a way, as much as you admire the intellectual tradition of Catholicism, you keep things personal. And those are, huh. th maybe I'm wrong uh, at the no, way I'm looking in the window. That's how I've experienced you too, Bishop Peter. <laughs> but I, I just find it awesome. And, yeah. and, and so maybe I'm looking in the window of the Baptist house and, and not seeing things correctly. But I, I always admire that in you, that it's very personal. You're very concerned about what's going on in your heart, meaning the center of your person. It reminds me of the great Anabaptist tradition of this is an adult religion. We're giving our selves totally from the center of our being to our God, and it's nothing less than that. Uh, so anyway, it just really comes through in you. I wanted to reflect that oh, back to well, I'm happy to hear that, Frank, because in many ways that is the part of Baptist, the Baptist understanding of the Christian experience that still informs me. Mm -hmm. And so that's the richness of the Baptist tradition mm -hmm. about the, what is the implications of this upon the state of my heart and soul? Right. And, and there's an emphasis on having Jesus as your personal Savior. Right. And so even to this day, having a personal relationship with my God mm -hmm. uh, through Jesus is still very strong within me. And it comes And what across. I discovered is that in, within Catholicism, I could still, I could still have that. Yes. Mm. I wasn't losing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're finding more of a wholeness, although people on the outside think that you're going crazy, but on the inside, there's, <laughs> I mean, I, I can resonate with that experience of needing to choose something that, that means following your heart when you can't quite even put it into words to the people you love most. Mm. You you still yeah. do it, and and because it's it's a movement toward wholeness. Mm. I, I, I think you said it so well, Jessica, mm. 
because in my quest, it seemed like I was stumbling through the dark, but I was trying to find that way mm. that gave me a deeper experience of the presence of God in my life. Yeah. And it had to be personal. Yeah. And um, it had to be a religion of the heart. The religion of the head is, is fine to some extent, but it, it has to be something that emanates from your heart. Mm-hmm. So that in my own theological studies, which I try to do and stay up with even to this day, it's really my, it's flowing out of my own inner experience. It's faith-seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't have the experience, then it just becomes, it reduces Christianity to an ideology, right. which I think is very dangerous. Sure. Well, and then it can be compartmentalized. Like, the beauty of how you've been talking is that, you know, the, the wholehearted experience of, you know, this God has an immediate influence on my everyday life, and not just when I go to church. That's right. It's a, it's a daily uh, experience, like any relationship between persons right. that you're close to. And I, I wanted to be close to God, and I discovered that Catholicism had so many ways, in so many different ways, a great variety of ways in which I could experience that, mm-hmm. in ways that, uh, that was beyond my Baptist experience. Now, speaking of that, you ended up in a branch, I guess we could call it, of, of the Catholic tradition in California there that was a was an old Catholic church. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. It was part of my struggle, uh, Frank and uh-huh. Jessica, and that is that I was irresistibly drawn to the Catholic experience and the Catholic faith tradition, and in particular, a Eucharistic-centered spirituality. Mm-hmm. Those were things that really attracted me. And so I was drawn to Catholicism, but I wanted to be sincere mm-hmm. and being able to say, I believe this. Mm-hmm. So I had to do a rigorous study of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And I had many Catholic friends at this time that I knew through the charismatic renewal. Mm-hmm. So they helped me and made great contributions. And I was starting to read many Catholic theologians at that time. In particular, I really enjoyed the writings of Hans Kuhn. Mm-hmm and others, and so I found it to be very compelling and attractive. The thing that was a problem for me entering the Roman Catholic Church were two things. The institutionalism seemed to create a rigidity that often prevents us from having a a more authentic relationship with Christ and others. And that's my criticism of the Roman Catholic Church, and it really, that's, that's it. It's this kind of authoritarianism that comes through the institution that I found that I could not embrace. Mm-hmm. There was something within me that resisted that, and it was preventing me from fully embracing Catholicism as it was offered in the only way that I knew it existed in the Roman Catholic Church. And in my conversations with my Catholic friends, they understood and appreciated my concern. And it's then when one of them said to me, maybe your way into a Catholic experience is through the back door of the Catholic Church. And I said, what do you mean, the back door of the Catholic (laughs) Church? And I was at that time informed of this strange phenomenon of the old Catholic Church. I had never heard of the old Catholic Church. Hmm. Mm -hmm. The old Catholic Church is a movement that began more than a century ago. And when I started reading up on the old Catholics, it seemed to resolve my my dilemma. Mm. The old Catholics were offering 
another kind of Catholic experience without that rigidity and authoritarian experience that I saw so prevalent within the Roman Catholic Church that I could not embrace. And so I entered the strange world of old Catholicism in America. I say strange world because there were many good things you could say about the old Catholics, but the the old Catholic Church was well established in Europe. But in the United States, it was a movement that was splintered, Mm -hmm. didn't have much substance to it. It was ignored by the European old Catholics. When I first discovered independent Catholicism, I mean, I really thought it was just a bunch of people dressing up and playing priests. I didn't really give it a lot of credence at first until I experienced the ecumenical Catholic communion. So it is sort of a mixed bag in independent Catholicism. Yeah, it's not a coherent organization or ecclesial body in this country. Mm -hmm. It's more like a movement, an underground movement, if you will, of independent Catholicism. That is, Catholics finding a way to maintain their Catholic identity and to express their Catholic faith out of the context of Rome. The good thing was there was a lot of freedom there. The bad thing was there was a lot of chaos and strange behaviors to be found in this movement. I found that that it was broken up into many small, very small communities Mm -hmm. throughout the United States. And coming from a large denomination like the American Baptist Church, I was not impressed. As a denomination, it was sorely lacking. And it really wasn't a denomination. It was just a collection of various individuals and various small groups that didn't seem to get along with each other. So it was really, I, I, that's why I refer to it as the strange world. Well, I'm glad you said that. So it's a it's a real mixed bag. So on the one hand, you're being attracted to it because of the lack of, of rigidity and it, it's not an authoritarian experience. And it is a a place where you can experience the rich liturgical life of Catholicism. So there are all those uh, positive things. But then then there's this negative stuff that's sort of gnawing at you, too. Um, Is this a transition maybe for explaining how you ended up going from that place to, to the ecumenical Catholic communion? How did all that come about? I needed to be true to myself, true to my heart. I took the advice of my Roman Catholic friends, and I visited and became involved with an old Catholic community in East L.A. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard of that. Sure. Well, actually, I visited the church you're talking about, so I know. Yeah. Okay. So it was there that I it was a small community, but it was a genuine Catholic community. And it was there that I began to participate in the life of an old Catholic congregation And it was there that I received my confirmation, and because of my ministerial background, they ordained me a a transitional deacon, and after more study, and over time, they then ordained me a priest, and that was in 1984. You know what, Bishop Peter, I I just want to back up real quick, because for my benefit, and maybe the benefit of our listeners, could you just describe briefly the characteristics of East L.A.? Well, East Los Angeles is an overwhelmingly Hispanic area, and it was so in the 1980s. I was this white boy <laughs> from Orange County. With red hair. Republican, conservative <laughs> Orange County. <laughs> and what, there was a bit of a culture shock of driving into East L.A. and being mm-hmm. a part of a community that was primarily Hispanic. And, uh, and the liturgies were bilingual. And so I was learning about the Hispanic culture, which... I had not much experience with, even though I grew up in Southern California, Mm -hmm. as well as immersing myself in the Catholic ethos. Mm -hmm. 
you know, they did preserve all those things that I loved about Catholicism. And the bishop at that church was an elderly Hispanic man, well-educated, and he spent time with me, and I began to learn so much from him. And it eventually led to me being ordained a priest, and then I, after I was ordained a priest, I said, I'd like to start an old Catholic community in Orange County. Mm. And his response to me is, well, how are you going to do that? There are no old Catholics in Orange County, <laughs> as far as he knew. And I said, well, there are a lot of people who self-identify as Catholic, but they have been marginalized from the Roman Catholic Church, and they have no home. I, I was aware of the, de- the, the Roman Catholic diaspora, <laughs> because as a Baptist minister, we had Catholics wander into our church. <laughs> and tried to make our church, a Baptist church, their home. Hmm. And it was really sad because they never wanted to leave the Roman Catholic Church, but due to some impediment like divorce and remarriage, they were marginalized, Mm. and they no longer felt welcome. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was this population of people, and, and that represented large numbers of people. And I thought that what was needed was a Catholic Church that would accept those people Mm -hmm. who are already Catholic, and some of them can make a home in a Protestant church, but many or most just become unchurched. In fact, at the time I heard it said that the largest religious grouping in the United States are non-practicing ex-Catholics. Mm. I mean, that, there are more of those than there are. They're the largest group, and religious group. Roman Catholicism is such a cultural phenomenon that even if you leave the church, I mean, this is I, I see this in my family who have left the church for different reasons. It doesn't mean you're not like there's still this Catholic core about you. There's still because I think it's such a full body expression of faith, for better yeah. or for worse. Because sometimes those rituals can also reinforce some bad authoritarian kind of things, but it also like the ritual also gets in your system so that it becomes part of your unconscious and part of your person in some ways. So it's very hard. I think you're right, in particular for for Catholics to to find another church that feels comfortable just because of the way that our bodies and our minds and our spirits are sort of formed in that tradition. I I could resonate with that. Totally. Well, I think what you're saying is very true, Jessica, because I do think there is a Catholic consciousness. Mm-hmm. And for lack of a better word, I, I, I would call it a, a sacramental consciousness. It's how you view the whole world. It's how you view life mm-hmm. through the lens of a sacramental spirituality. Mm-hmm. Catholics who may go into the Protestant church never fully divest themselves of that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I saw as a Baptist minister And so my heart went out to those people, Mm -hmm. because I thought it was very tragic Mm. that they were forced to go to a church that they wanted to go to church and have church a part of their life. They would go to a church that they really couldn't fully identify with, that was very different than their Catholic experience. So there was always a sadness. Like, they would ask me when I was a Baptist minister, how come we can't, can we not have communion every Sunday? Mm. (laughs) Because Baptists would only have communion once a month. When they approached what we called in the Baptist Church the Lord's Table for communion, I noticed that the Catholics that were within the congregation, uh, in this Baptist congregation, seemed to have a different kind of experience than than the the Baptists who were having, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who were hosting this uh, expression of what they called the Lord's Supper. I realized that those were a population of people that had a deep-felt need. They wanted to still be Catholic. 
and yet they were not permitted in the institutional Roman Catholic Church to be able to participate. Peter, if it's okay, I'd just like to jump in here because I'm jumping around the room listening to you talking. This is very animating for me uh, because I know you and I kind of know the the story of what happened after this moment. So to hear you talk about this moment is so helpful in shining a light on why it made sense that the ecumenical Catholic communion would be birthed around you. You strike me as someone who is compassionate, period. So you have a lot of empathy. So And, and you're thinking, you're attentive to what's going on in someone else. This may all sound obvious, like, well, shouldn't a pastor be this way? Well, unfortunately, not all pastors have the skills you have. But you are very attentive to what's going on inside of other people. You're thinking about that. This isn't a story about you. It's a story about them. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're yeah. focused. And you're focused on their needs. Mm-hmm. And and you just very naturally move toward those who were marginalized. It, it, just the words that popped out of your mouth when you talked to that Hispanic bishop and said, you know, no, but I know there are all these marginalized people who have no place to fit. And I want to provide that for them. So you're responding to a need. It, it's so elemental and so simple. And when I say huh. it, it maybe sounds duh, but unfortunately, uh, that's a diamond that you just don't always see. And it's why so many of us, myself included, Jessica included, all of us who have our individual stories who didn't quite fit in the Catholic experience we came from through you and the people who are gathering around you, all of a sudden we were able to find a place where we fit because someone's thinking, what would it be like to have a home for all these people? Well, that what you're saying is spot on. That was what I was experiencing, and that was what was going on within me to provide a home that was familiar and needed by by all of these marginalized Catholics. And it was an act of compassion. The most outstanding quality that I love most about Jesus was that Jesus always displayed the virtue of compassion. Everything he did in his life, and we even look at his death as being an act of compassion toward others. And that's what inspired my my own understanding of true pastoral ministry. It needs to be compassionate, Mm -hmm. as Jesus modeled it for us. So I knew that this was a population that needed compassion, and that was a burning desire within my heart to create a home for the homeless Catholics. Mm -hmm. The bishop said to me at that time, and I was only at this time 30 years old, okay. and the bishop told me at that <laughs> Jesus time, age. he says, well, <laughs> I can't support you financially. I don't have any resources, but you have my blessing. And so uh, this was Bishop Emilie Rodriguez Fairfield. Hmm. And so I went to Orange County and started my work of reaching out to the marginalized Roman Catholics, and I started St. Matthew Church in 1985. And I only thought in terms of the local church. I had no vision beyond starting a local parish community where people who were marginalized could be welcomed to the table of the Lord Mm -hmm. and welcomed to participate in the fullness of a Catholic parish life. Mm -hmm. I never thought beyond that to what later would become the ECC. Mm -hmm. That was rather accidental. Hmm. So I love that the the thing that has brought 
you know, Frank, Frank and I were telling each other our stories in the first episode and this thing that just coalesced for us into this amazing experience of communion, as you described it, and really changed our stories, uh, just railroaded our stories and, and made our lives turn toward this incredible expression of passion and faith for us was you're, you're describing it right now as this accident and it just makes me <laughs> laugh <laughs> i just think that's kind of beautiful and perfect because you know some of the most wonderful things just kind of happen by well accident. isn't that the case yeah. I, I love asking <laughs> married couples how they met and right. usually it's this chance thing right yeah, yeah. And that a beginning for for you, Peter, that was just sort of this act of responding to a need locally just has such wide ripples. I want to ask you more questions about like the specific pieces of beginning the ecumenical Catholic communion, but I kind of want to take a break too real quick and and want to remind you that you're listening to a priest and a bishop walk into a story. And we'll be back with Bishop Peter Hickman in a moment to tell us our birth story of how the ecumenical Catholic community began. Are you addicted to hot sauce, spicy foods, mouth-watering barbecue, chili peppers, or buffalo wings? Oh, yeah! Well, do we have something for you. Join Scott Roberts, host of the Weekly Firecast, a foodie podcast on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network that features the best of fiery foods and barbecue. Whether you like cooking over fire or crave food that feels like fire in your mouth, there's bound to be something for you. So tune into the weekly Firecast at twoguystalking.com and savor the burn. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising can have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Like what you're hearing on A Priest and a Bishop Walk Into a Story? We are listener and donor supported. Donate now and hear more stories from an inclusive and welcoming Catholic perspective. We love sharing our guests' stories with you, our listener, and we want to keep bringing you more for a long time to come. Support A Priest and a Bishop Walk Into a Story today with your donation Visit us at apriestandabishop.com and walk away changed. Being an outcast isn't something that all of us feel every now and then. It's been the subject of stories forever. Take, for example, the X-Men comic book series. In 1963, we were introduced to a number of characters that were different. Super Strength plasma bolts emitted from eye sockets, the ability to read minds, a man that could fly with angel's wings. In 2000, we were introduced to the X-Men on the silver screen. There, Professor X would teach not only his mutant students, but us, as viewers of film, what it meant to be a mutant. There have been more X-Men movies, and even another coming up. But where can you find the best discussion of all of the X-Men movies? 
Be sure to check out the X-Men Perspective Review Series at twoguystalking.com forward slash X-Men. Bullet point based detailed discussion from fans, fanboys, and mutants just like you. Join in the homo superior discussion at twoguystalking.com forward slash X-Men. That's the number two, guystalking.com forward slash X-Men. I'm Jessica Gazzola, the priest. And I am Frank Krebs, the bishop. I love all beginnings, despite their anxiousness and their uncertainty, which belong to every commencement. If I had earned a pleasure or a reward, or if I wish that something had not happened, if I doubt the worth of an experience and remain in my past, then I choose to begin at this very second. Begin what? I begin. I have already thus begun a thousand lives. That was a piece by Rainer Maria Rilke. Beautiful. Yeah, I really think it speaks to the complexity of the feelings that come around beginnings and how we're always put in this position to choose to begin again. And Bishop Peter, you were telling us about coming to this place almost by accident of finding yourself at a beginning of a new expression of church. So lead us through those early months uh, leading up to the founding of the ECC? I have to first of all say, Jessica, that I really appreciate those words that you have quoted. They do capture somehow the essence of that kind of experience of a new beginning. And I really think that's what grace is all about. It's about the opportunity of having a new beginning. And I think that's at the heart of the faith of Jesus. What had happened that led up to the unlikely emergence of the ecumenical Catholic communion. It begins in the mid-90s when our bishop uh, died, and we no longer had a bishop. And so St. Matthew's became this isolated Catholic worshiping community of about 200 families. And we did not have any connection any longer with the historic church through, through a bishop. And we, as Catholics, we recognize the importance of the role of the bishop within the life of the church. So what happened was, is that the community decided to find a bishop that we could affiliate with. And we did contact some, but we found them very wanting. This is a common problem in the independent Catholic movement, that there are some bishops that really lack competency, sadly. And so we decided amongst ourselves that we want to be a self-contained Catholic community. And uh, in order to do that, one of us at St. Matthew's needed to become a bishop. So the congregation, along with the four or five Roman Catholic priests who had joined with us because they were married, they elected me to become a candidate for ordination to be a bishop of our church. And the purpose was to guarantee our integrity as a local community and to maintain our Catholic identity and to survive. We were not thinking of creating any movement outside of ourselves. Mm. It was a matter of (laughs) self-preservation to continue what we were doing locally. So then they elected me in 1995, and then we approached an organization of old Catholic bishops or independent Catholic bishops at that time 
which we felt had cre- some level of credibility. And that, that organization, which no longer exists, was called the Communion of Ecumenical Catholic and Apostolic Churches. And they had about five bishops a part of that organization. And so we petitioned them, and then they interviewed me. I, I went and visited all of the bishops. They questioned me, and then they voted and decided that they would accept this petition. And so they came to California on May the 19th, 1996, and I was ordained a bishop, or as they would put it, I was consecrated a bishop. And so now St. Matthew's became a totally self-sufficient, self-governing local Catholic faith community. We had everything we needed to maintain our existence and our identity. But even though our purpose was just merely for the local need of this local community, uh, apparently the Holy Spirit had other ideas. <laughs> and what began to happen, there were a, a couple of local faith communities in the Los Angeles area, similar to St. Matthew's, who did not have a bishop, and so they affiliated with me, hmm. wanted me to be their bishop. And so I was happy to do that. And then one of our priests at St. Matthew's went to Colorado, that's Scott Father Scott Jenkins, Jenkins hmm. to start a community there, and he was successful and then he contacted me and wanted me to be the bishop for that community, and I said, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's too far away. Huh. I had my hands full just with St. Matthew's, and I said, I have an idea, Scott, why don't you just become a bishop <laughs> and, and do what I'm doing, and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. This may sound very strange, but that is part of the strange world of independent Catholicism. Right. But he did not feel, or nor his community, that they wanted to do that. They wanted to be affiliated with St. Matthew's. And so I had this community called Holy Family in Aurora, Colorado, that joined with what was emerging to be a kind of diocese. And I was very reluctant about doing this. But the game changer came in 2001 when I was contacted by representatives of Spiritus Christi, a Catholic community in Rochester that it was it was at one time a Roman Catholic parish community called Corpus Christi, but through right. dramatic controversy, it became an independent Catholic community. And one of the things that caused that to happen is because they were advocating a very progressive Catholic agenda. That is, they, they supported the equality of men and women, supported women's ordination, they were open and affirming to gay and lesbian couples. And so this was creating a lot of difficulty for them with the local Roman Catholic bishop. They eventually were forced to leave the Roman Catholic Diocese of Rochester. And that was a group that was led by Father Jim Callan and a laywoman by the name of Mary Rammerman. The reason they contacted me is that the community of now called Spiritus Christi felt that Mary had a call to ordination, and they wanted to have her ordained a Catholic priest. Well, the problem was, how do you ordain a woman to become a Catholic priest? In the meantime... Let's just freeze frame there for a second, because this is such a sacred moment, I don't want to uh, rush through it. So, okay. So if... So I want to go back into your mind in, what was this, 2001, you said... So yeah. So 15 years ago, just for our listeners' sake, women were not being ordained priests, in, certainly in the Roman Catholic Church or in the Old Catholic movement, 
were they, I think they probably were already ordained priests as in the Episcopal Church, no? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the American Episcopal Church. Right, okay. Yeah. Right, but not the Anglican Church worldwide. No, no. So just, okay. All right, so so this was, I'm, I just want to put a spotlight on how this was a really quite a, a it gave you pause. Like, what am I supposed yeah. to do with this? I'm glad you said that, because there might have been women being ordained in some of the old Catholic groups in the 1990s, but I was not aware of them. Mm-hmm. So as far as I knew, no one in the old Catholic movement at that time were ordaining women. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a lot of opposition among people in the old Catholic movement against women's ordination. Mm-hmm. Certainly the bishops who consecrated me opposed the ordination of women. Oh, that's I didn't realize that. I guess I had yeah. just perceived so many of, I know that it's a fractured movement, but so many of the old Catholics as holding on to at least the basic tenets of the old Catholic Church in Europe, which had, I mean, they were, they were, they've been ordaining women for a couple decades, right? Right. The old Catholics in Europe have been doing it since the 90s, so they would have, yeah. they would have already been doing it. That's true. Huh. So yeah, this th- is stepping up for you. I didn't rare, realize still that. Still rarely. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Okay. I understood they were moving in that direction. Okay. Um, it, it still wasn't something that was a common experience here among the various old Catholic groups in the United States, hmm. as far as I knew. <laughs> and I knew that the group of old Catholic bishops who ordained me were certainly opposed to women's ordination. So this is a really and a big risk you're what taking. What happened a little earlier in 1999, I was approached by a Roman Catholic priest, a Holy Cross father by the name of Ned Reedy. Uh who ran the Newman Center out in Palm Springs, California. He was a great advocate for women's ordination, and he had been co-ministering at the Newman Center with a former Glen Mary sister by the name of Kathleen McCarthy. So he heard about St. Matthew's and heard that I was this young bishop who might be willing to ordain her. (laughs) And so they came down and visited me. And this was the first time that I was confronted with the issue of women's ordination, Mm -hmm. because I really wasn't advocating that. I really wasn't an activist for that. Mm -hmm. I I, I just wasn't, I was not involved in women's issues. Mm -hmm. I was pretty much focused on what I was, felt I was called to do at St. Matthew's. So I I didn't think about women being um, ordained. But when they came to my door and I invited them, and we sat down in a meeting together, and they told me their story. Hmm. Frank, this this harkens back Hmm. to what you were saying, the importance of people's story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the narrative that Mm -hmm. moves the human heart. Wow. Not not that kind of abstract, philosophical, theological thinking. It's really it's the Hmm. God is at work in our in the events of our lives, and when we tell that story, it somehow changes how we see things. They Amen, brother. <laughs> and her felt called to ordain ministry and his crisis of conscience that he could not stay in an institution that would discriminate against someone like his friend Kathy McCarthy. Hmm. And so they requested that I would come out to Palm Springs and I would ordain her a priest. And I was moved to tears by this narrative. Wow. Hmm. Wow. As 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 they were telling it. And then out of my mouth came these words, which I didn't give much forethought to, but mm. you know how sometimes you'll find yourself saying something, right. and you said, where'd that come from? <laughs> right. so I, I, I looked at Kathy, 
And, uh, and I said to her, I said, I look forward to participating in your ordination. Wow. And I was shocked that I said that. Hmm. Hmm. But you know how sometimes the heart will override the intellect. Sure. <laughs> sure. So I hadn't worked out a, a, a rationale for doing it. Right. And, and then I had a lot of explaining to do to my community. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that's when I started doing research on women's ordination. Hmm. And then I found it to be very compelling, hmm. the case for women's ordination. And also it was an issue for conscience for me. How could I say no? I love, I, this. I love this. I love this because what you're telling us is that you you were not focused on this issue at all. It's not like you said, I want to go out and campaign for women's dignity and women's rights and women being taking every step forward in society that they can and women's ordination. You're you're not saying that. You just met a woman who told the story, and you were moved with compassion to respond to her need. It, it's that thing all over again. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, that's that's what moved me. I, I, I certainly was not engaged in women's issues. It, it was it was not on my radar, and it was as you said, it was her story. <laughs> so it was a relational encounter with two people of faith, and she had a definite call, and the official church was not responding to that call, and they were asking me if I would, and so I was compelled by my conscience, I believe. Mm -hmm. to say yes. Mm -hmm. So it became an issue of conscience for me at that moment. That's awesome. And then I didn't realize that I would become this advocate right. <laughs> for women's <laughs> ordination. And actually, in my tenure as a bishop, I've ordained more women than men. <laughs> well, I was going to say, Bishop Peter, this is all news to me. And because the ECC is it has become a communion that women know that their gifts will be welcomed. I mean, that's what I, I figured that we were just founded on those those issues, which of course of course we we were because of the makeup of the communion as it developed, but I didn't realize that this wasn't your issue. I mean it's so beautiful <laughs> and yeah. ironic and goodness gracious you were on a roller coaster ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, so it surprised me. It surprised me that these two people, Father Ned Reedy and Kathy McCarthy, would come to my door. That was unexpected. Mm. And then the conversation was unexpected. Her story was unexpected. Mm. And then how I responded to it was quite unexpected <laughs> to me. Wow. So I was as surprised as anybody. Wow, wow, that's beautiful. And this was so, some years before what happened in Rochester, this, right? You were telling us correct. the story it about... It happened in 1999. Mm -hmm. And so on Pentecost Sunday of the year 2000, I went to Palm Springs, the congregation chartered a bus, and we all went, all the St. Matthew's people went out, mm. and this ordination was celebrated um, because of the hospitality of the Episcopal Church in the big Episcopal Church in Palm Springs, the one that Gerald Ford and Betty Ford were parishioners of. Really? <laughs> and it was a full church, and I celebrated the ordination of a woman for the very first time mm. to the priesthood. And, uh, by the way, I did get the full support of my congregation. Well, if they went yeah. on a bus with you, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we embraced this, and we embraced Kathy McCarthy. And I have to tell you that when I laid hands on her, and then all the other priests got up and laid hands on her during the uh, the liturgy, that it, I, I felt it was a spirit-filled moment. I, I wow. had no doubt in my mind that I was doing what God wanted me to do at that moment. Mm -hmm. 
it was such a, a great affirming moment. And if I had any doubts about women's ordination, well, when I was actually ordaining a woman, those doubts have never returned. They left and never came back. Hmm. Wow. And it was very liberating for me. Hmm. And, hmm. I, and, and it, it, I became acutely aware of the tremendous injustice that the Church was perpetrating upon our sisters. Hmm. And Kathy McCarthy turned out to be one of the finest priests I ever have ever known. Hmm. Kathy McCarthy was involved, as well as Ned, in the Roman Catholic Reform Movement, and they were a part of CTA, Call to Action. Mm-hmm. So Kathy McCarthy and Ned Reedy, over the years, often had seminars and spoke at these gatherings. And there was one such gathering in San Diego in, uh, later in 1999, and Kathy McCarthy went there, and she wore her Roman collar, mm. which stunned the people at the CTA to see a woman dressed as a priest. Mm-hmm. And at first, they thought she was an Episcopal priest, but too many people already knew that she was already a Catholic and not Episcopalian. So it created a great stir. And one of the people that she ran into at the CTA conference in San Diego in 1999 was Mary Rammerman. Mm. And Mary Rammerman had known Kathy McCarthy and Ned Reedy from their work in progressive reformed Roman Catholicism, the movement through CTA. So they knew each other, and Mary says, Kathy, what are you doing wearing a priest's collar? Mm. Like it was a little over the top for her to do that. Mm -hmm. And Kathy says, well, because I am a Catholic priest. And Mary said to her, you're what? How'd this happen? (laughs) Well, opening up the imagination. It turned out at that time that the community of Spiritus Christi that formed that same year was discerning how they would proceed with the ordination of Mary Rammerman. And so for the first time, Mary Rammerman heard about a a Catholic woman being ordained a Catholic priest. And so I received a phone call from her after she went back to her community, and it was in early 2001. And when Mary was on the phone and she identified herself, I said to her, Oh, Mary, I've been waiting for this call. Because I had heard about Spiritus Christi. I was reading about their story in the uh, National Catholic Reporter. Wow. And when she called me, I, I, I found myself saying that. Wow. <laughs> that I was waiting for this call. Wow. Mm. Which probably surprised her. She came out and visited St. Matthew's, and we talked. She met with Kathy McCarthy and Ned Reedy, and then I would go back a couple of times to Spiritus Christi to talk with their leadership and their congregation. They weren't sure which direction they were going to go. There was a great move in Spiritus Christi just to have a congregational ordination for Mary without a bishop. But Mary and Jim Callum felt, yeah, we could do that. And she would be an ordained minister within this community, but, but she wouldn't be a Catholic priest. And she felt called to be a Catholic priest, like Kathy McCarthy. And so in November of 2001... A delegation from St. Matthew's accompanied me, and we went to Rochester, and on the 17th of November, 2001, we celebrated the ordination of Mary Rammerman in the Eastman Auditorium in downtown Rochester, and there were about 3,000, 3,500 people that had gathered to see this event. It was very high Uh, profile. Yeah, well, it was covered in the news nationally, I recall. Well, it, it was actually covered internationally. Really? Mm-hmm. In the news. So there were, uh, the media was there. It's the first time I ever participated in a press conference mm-hmm. with all this media and interviews. 
and there were cameras everywhere. When we entered the Eastman Auditorium, as the choir was singing, the people were gathering, the feeling was electric in the air. We knew we were a part of something historic. Just from when I visited that community, they're a community that just is full of energy and cohesion anyway. And so to be lifting up this woman in the midst of them and to have the support of this bishop and to be getting the intention, I'm sure. I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah, you must have been buzzing. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It, it It was amazing. And so what I couldn't believe was I was just this little guy from a little church in California. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. uh, and and here I was thrust on the world stage, so to speak, and I was at the center of this remarkable moment yeah. uh, that was shared and there were a lot of groups of reformed Roman Catholic organizations that were present there. So this was a big move moment for Roman Catholics. And I couldn't believe that I was I was the one who was actually uh, celebrating this ordination. American Baptist white boy. What? <laughs> I know. Uh, so that's what I mean. It was so unexpected and surprising. I didn't plan it. I didn't set out. Yeah. I didn't put myself out there as the bishop who will ordain women. Yeah. It just happened. Wow. I stayed at Jim Callan's home, and there were other guests from around the world staying there, and I met a, a, an Austrian woman by the name of Christine Lutzenberger Meyer. And she um, was a part of the Women's Ordination Conference over in Europe. And she wanted to attend this ordination. And when we were together, she said, I now know how we can get women to become Catholic priests. Rather than waiting on Rome, we can just do it. And it will happen. The reason I'm mentioning her is that after the ordination of Mary Rammerman, Christine invited me to ordain women on the Danube River in Austria uh, the following year. That was a historic moment, too, for women's ordination. That's a big deal. Yeah, and a, a couple of things I should mention is that after Mary was ordained, the, the news spread quickly internationally. My father-in-law is an Italian man from Italy, and his sister lives in Rome. He got a call the next day from his sister in Rome. She says, Luciano, you cannot believe it. Your son-in-law, Peter, he's on the front page of the big newspaper in Rome. And he's ordaining a woman. And, and, and he looks like Robert Redford. <laughs> That's funny. And, you do kind of look like and Robert And at that moment, I was stunned. I, I realized this was something that had gone beyond just the United States. It became an international story. Yeah. And that was the flash so, that really brought so many more communities and people to to you, I'd imagine. Yeah, I did. I, I had my 15 minutes of fame, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. Two things happened at that event, I and mean, that's why I mentioned this to you. There was a man attending the event who was a part of one of the Roman Catholic reform organizations by the name of Charlie. Charlie Davis, sure. Yes, Charlie Davis. And Charlie Davis has been very active in CTA and and CORE, which is the Catholic Organizations for Renewal. And he contributed, had over the years contributed many articles to the NCR. Well, he and I became friends, and and he was deeply moved by what he experienced in Rochester. So after I left Rochester to return home to my normal life 
as an obscure bishop in a little church in, in Orange County, California, I thought that was the end of it for me, as far mm. as that. I would mm. just get back to doing my local ministry. Mm. But then Charlie and Jim Ferris came to me a few months later, and they had a proposal. And their proposal was, we need to create an ecclesial body mm. that would bring together these various Catholic reform groups and these various Eucharistic communities that have sprung up across the country and some of the various old Catholic communities and gather them together into a, an organization that would have credibility. Mm. So the idea of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion was the brainchild of Father Jim Ferris and Charlie Davis. And how did you feel and when they brought that to you? Were you like, yes, or were you like, oh, no, my. I wasn't. <laughs> I said, I'm too busy doing my parish work, and busy. I don't want to get caught up in all this stuff, you yeah. know. And I, besides, I don't know how to start an ecclesial organization of this size that mm. you're talking about. And they said, we understood that would be your reaction. Hmm. So we want to hire somebody, uh, but preferably a lay woman who would organize this new ecclesial organization that would ultimately become the Ecumenical Catholic Communion. Hmm. So Charlie and Jim Ferris paid the salary of a young woman by the name of Allison Sansom, and she was an activist. And so she went to work, and we had a gathering at St. Matthew's in September of 2003. There were delegations from different communities. There was even a delegation, uh, even Mary Rammerman and Denise Donato from Spiritus Christi came. Mm. A constitution was written and debated and then voted on, and we named ourselves the Ecumenical Catholic Communion. And the reason we call ourselves the Ecumenical Catholic Communion because we saw ourselves not starting a new church. Mm. We were already Catholics, mm. and we felt that we already belonged to the Catholic Church, even though the institutional church would not recognize us as such. But we wanted to create a communion where communities can join mm. and come together in solidarity. Mm. So the ordination of Mary Rammerman really is the catalyst that started the ECC. And if it wasn't for that ordination, and if it wasn't for the great foresight of uh, Charlie Davis and Jim Ferris, there would not be an ECC. I would not have thought of it. Hmm. I would have not on my own gone out and start start what you experienced later as the Ecumenical Catholic Communion. Yeah, that's it's just so fascinating. So, like, it's almost like it's unfolding in front of you, and you are just sort of witness to it. So what was it like when all those people came together, and you're working on a constitution, and you were like, oh my god, this is real? You know, what was going on inside of you in those moments? Well, I, I was in a state of amazement. Hmm. There was a lot of debating and arguing going on, and yet the, they all came together because they realized Maybe they couldn't agree on all the particulars, but they did agree on one thing. We must be together. Mm. And so they all voted unanimously to accept the Constitution, and they elected me the first presiding bishop because there was no other bishop around. <laughs> and I was just, the doors were being opened by others, and I was just walking through them. Yeah. Mm. 
That's the spirit, right? I mean, you're such a spirit guy. I hear you talking about Sophia, about spirit all the time, and you're so in yeah. tune with that part of God. And, and I mean, that just seems to be the characteristic of her, you know, that, you know, hey, there's a door yeah. open, walk through it. <laughs> I'm inviting you. And you did that to the nth degree. <laughs> well, you know, Jessica, I have learned over the years, that is the way she operates. The Holy Spirit is the unseen hands that guide us. And we are just called to respond to the move and direction of the Spirit. Um, so it wasn't that we thought we, we would create an organization that would be so much better than other church organizations. It was mm -hmm. that we were feeling led of the Spirit mm -hmm. to come together and to do something. And it's a matter of responding. I think that we are called in the ECC to be a Spirit-led people. I'm convinced of that. Well, kind of liken responding to the Spirit like a surfer, out here in California, especially Orange County, you know, we're like the surfing capital of the country. Right. And what a surfer does is it, it, the surfer is watching the waves. And the surfer can tell from some distance away when there is a good wave to catch. Mm -hmm. And they caught the wave, and then they have this great ex exhilarating experience of being uh, on top of a wave on their surfboard. The closest thing to flying. Mm -hmm. The surfer doesn't create the wave, doesn't make it happen. The surfer responds to what's already happening and catching the wave. And that's how I see the ECC. The ECC is a group of people who are catching the wave of the Spirit. <laughs> and we're riding image. on the Spirit. I love that image. Does that make sense? It makes total Absolutely. sense. And what a wave it is of, um, I mean, we don't have time to get into all the particulars, but the, but the ECC went on then to be open to so many other kinds of marginalized people who felt they didn't fit, but it, it was a kind of a harbor church for other people to feel like they're safe at home, yeah. to be themselves, and to continue uh, living these things that seem so fundamental to our spiritual lives, and, and yet feeling like here we can fit in. It, it, it's, uh, what, a, what a wonderful story you've told us today, Peter, and uh, oh, it's, it's exciting. It, it, it's uh, a pleasure to, for me to share this with people, because I know that most people in the ECC at this time may not know how this was birthed, yeah. and it truly was a move of God. Right. And when I look back, I, I'm convinced of it. It's not like I thought up this harebrained idea. You know, <laughs> no. it, I, it, one thing that's hitting me, Jessica, we've been talking about the power of story and the importance of story, and here we're learning one more thing again, and that is that when a founder or, or someone from the beginning of a family or an organization or whatever tells the birth story, mm -hmm. it grounds us all again. So yeah. I'm a bishop in the ECC, and I do care about uh, how we're organized and all that, but I'm getting chills up and down my spine when I'm listening to Peter talking about catching the wave of the Spirit and how that's far more important than how sure. we're organized, because many places can be organized, but right. can every place pay attention to a movement of God? That That's a whole, that's a very, very sacred thing. So so in this case, Peter, your story is reminding me of our roots in a way that's very inspiring and important to hear again and yeah. again. Well, and it's inspired so many beginnings for so many women, lay and ordained, and so yeah. many men married and single and gay and straight. I mean, it's amazing. And we just want to ask our listeners to reflect on their own lives, and we just want Wonder, are you beginning something new now and what does that feel like and if not maybe you have a desire for a new beginning and 
And what might that be? So we just invite you to reflect on beginnings in your life today, too. Bishop oh, Peter, we really well thank said. you for your time. I, I want to give you a little postscript. <laughs> and, and, and Well, first of all, I want to say to my successor, the new presiding bishop. Oh, yes, which is yeah, our, our friend is, and co-host, Which Frank is uh, <laughs> the bishop on this program. That's Bishop Francis Krebs. Yeah. I cannot tell you enough of how happy I am that, Bishop Francis, that you were willing to take on this huge responsibility, and, and it is huge. And what was, what was handed to you by the people of the ECC a year or two ago w- was a very sacred thing, mm. and, and you're doing it. And to me, it's so rewarding to watch you in this role, mm. and I'm very happy <laughs> not to no longer be the presiding bishop. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. <laughs> it, it was a, one of the great experiences of my life. Uh, I would not trade it for anything. Yeah. But, you know, I did what was mine to do, as St. Francis said. Mm. And I have other things I want to do. And so it, it's been great that we could have this transition in leadership. And the, the judgment of our communion, I think, was informed by the Holy Spirit. And we have the right person now mm. who is leading us as our new presiding bishop. So I wanted to say that. Oh, thank you, Peter. That's very gracious of you. I support what you're doing. I'm behind you 100%. And and I'm the only other person in our community that knows what it's like to be in the position you're in. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So so have fun, Frank. Okay, I will, Peter. Enjoy, Enjoy stepping back, which is what you always wanted to do, but thank God you didn't do it for 12 years because oh. a lot of beautiful things were born. For sure, and yeah. that, was, that was a long wave to ride, and I really expect that there's another wave coming your way, so you better watch out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Now the postscript I wanted to add, that moment in Rochester on November 17, 2001, was a seminal moment of something even bigger than the ECC because from that experience, the ECC was born. If it wasn't for what happened in Rochester, there would be, I guess, I would think, no ecumenical Catholic communion as we know it. Mm. It was that event that gave birth to the ecumenical Catholic communion. Mm. But it also gave birth to another movement. Christine Meyer is the one who started the Roman Catholic women's priest movement. Oh, simultaneous almost. So (laughs) the birth of the RCWP and the birth of the ECC come out of the same seminal moment. And uh, it's, in in other words, we're like siblings (laughs) of the same experience that took place in 2001 in Rochester. It feels good that there's that common mission. I mean, sometimes even among these Catholic groups that are still maybe not within the same communion, but we're doing the same thing. Hey, we are sisters and brothers. I think that's something that the ecumenical Catholic communion brings to the the Catholic world is that we're all in this together. We're all expressing our Catholicity in its diversity, and that's really beautiful. I'm going to have to wrap things up, Bishop Peter, but I do want to share something with you. So one of the things that we're doing in this podcast because I wrote liturgy when I was working in the parish. It's it's still a passion of mine. So I'm ending each show with a two-line blessing that that goes along with the theme of this show. So I'd like to offer the blessing to you and to the rest of this little podcast crew, Mike and, and Frank. So today's blessing goes like this. May the God who makes all things new bless you. May even the smallest parts of you pulse and move and change with the tides of hope 
and curiosity and desire. And let each moment be a beginning in a world that surges toward a new tomorrow. Amen. 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 Oh, that's beautiful. Thanks. What a beautiful prayer. Will you send a text of that prayer to me, Jessica? I, I would be happy to. I would be happy to. Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was a great opportunity to share with you the story of the early days. It's wonderful. I'm sure we'll have you back on the show sometime, Bishop Peter. But um, in the meantime, we'll treasure these stories and we'll edit it and we'll teach you how to upload a podcast. <laughs> okay. I'm waiting for that. I love you both immensely. Oh, we love that. Yes, we love you too. I look love forward to too, seeing Peter. you in person sometime soon. <laughs> Thanks so much for this time. Indeed, it was my pleasure. God bless you both. Thank mm-hmm. you. Bye-bye. So, Jessica, that was awesome, uh, especially once he got going and, and once he started, you know, revealing what was going on in his heart. It just, it, it was awesome. Right. I mean, it was the story of this unwitting, you know, personality that just sort of found himself in the middle of really amazing events that I'm sure we'll look back on, you know, as these important historical markers. But, you know, you're in the middle of them and you're just like, holy cow, we're riding a wave or sure. wow, like, <laughs> I don't want to do this. And yet you do. And man, it just shows how one person who's just following their heart right. really creates ripples. And that's that's really Peter's story, I think, in a, in a nutshell. It's and it's, it continues. And, and it continues in your legacy too, Frank, as and you. And as well. Yeah, yeah, a priest and a bishop. Walk into another story again. We did it. Thank you for joining us on A Priest and a Bishop Walk Into a Story. I'm Jessica Gazzola. And I'm Frank Krebs. And we look forward to another story that we can walk into together next time. Mm-hmm.